Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef BJ Lieberman making his return to the podcast, and we mainly chat about Ginger Rabbit, which is the new jazz bar and lounge that he opened with his wife Bronwyn and the rest of kind of the Chapman's team. It's all kind of different people involved um, with opening and, and becoming beverage directors and general managers and stuff like that. So uh, it's their latest concept. Uh, they do have another one on the way, which we do touch on towards the end of this episode, Huareth, which uh, hopefully I'm saying that right, which will be in the short north too as well. But this is all kind of about Ginger Rabbit. So if you want to hear about kind of the beginnings and the origins of Chapman's Eat Market, check out the first episode um, that BJ did with us. I think it's episode number four in the feed. If you go back through it, if you never listened to it and you're new to the podcast, but Otherwise, we kind of talk about how Ginger Rabbit kind of came together, the idea for it, what kind of makes it unique, especially in Columbus, too, as well, where, you know, we have a lot of bars and stuff like that. But Ginger Rabbit is pretty unique in that it's a jazz bar um, dedicated to jazz. And it's one of, as I tell BJ on the episode, it's one of like four or five bars that I know of that don't actually have a TV on the wall, um, too, as well. So it's a really cool episode. I haven't been to Ginger Rabbit yet, um, but we are going to go soon and, and check it out for ourselves. Obviously, there was a big rush as soon as they announced, you know, that they were opening everything. Uh, you can find them on Instagram. Uh, it's at Ginger Rabbit Jazz, and they're open Monday through Saturday, like five to eleven or something like that. Uh, the only day that they're closed on Sunday, and then also Chapman's Eat Market in German Village. They're open Monday through Saturday, dinner. They have the patio in the summer. You can walk into the bar, um, donate a reservation for the bar. And then their reservation book opens on the first of the month too as well. So if you're looking to book a reservation, sometimes they have people drop out too as well. Um, you know, people make reservations in advance, something comes up. So sometimes you can snag a reservation that way, but make sure to follow them on Instagram for that restaurant too as well at Eat Chapman's. You can also follow their other account, their bar account for Chapman's at Drink Chapman's. And then BJ's personal account at BJ Lieberman. Follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter and Facebook. It's SpoonMob1, but mainly use the Instagram uh, account. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com for contact information, different photos, links to all the different episodes of the podcast that we've done too as well. You can write in questions, comments, feedback, either through the contact portal on the website or email us directly, SpoonMob at Yahoo.com. And make sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, new episodes uh, drop on Thursdays that we've never had anybody on before. Um, that's when Thursdays come out. These mini update episodes with returning guests are usually Monday and Tuesdays. And we just kind of do them sporadically uh, when someone's available. Then the YouTube channel, you can subscribe to that. All the episodes come out there uh, a week in arrears. Um, so they'll premiere on all the podcast platforms first and then hit YouTube just because it's a different system so not all the data funnels into the same thing but um yeah without any further delay here's my conversation with chef bj lieberman the owner of ginger rabbit jazz lounge here in columbus ohio since you were on this podcast last a uh, couple updates you consulted on the menu for freedom a la carte cafe and bakery that opened you held an actual grand opening for chapman's eat market and you guys were included on the New York Times 2021 Best 50 Restaurants in America list. And you opened another concept, Ginger Rabbit, which is a jazz bar and lounge, essentially, in the short north. So with kind of all that being said, kind of recapping some highlights of probably the past year or so, what made you want to open like a jazz bar and lounge? 
Well, first off, I can't believe that it's been this long since we've spoken that all those things happened in between the first time we spoke and now. I mean, when we moved to Columbus, it was always with our eye on doing multiple concepts. I've always wanted to do a bar. A jazz lounge was never really something specifically that was in our vision, but my kind of ethos is to not go out and look for a specific kind of space. Like I want to open a American style restaurant or whatever and go and try and find a space to fit that, but to find a space that you really like and then figure out what you want to do with it. And that was kind of what happened with Ginger Rabbit is the wood company um, showed us the space that used to be Kingmakers probably right around the time that the pandemic started. And we were really interested in it for a bar, but then with the pandemic, we kind of figured no one would be, want to be going down to a you know, 2,000 square foot basement and kind of put the idea on the back burner. Um, and it wasn't until last May when I'm using air quotes for all those listening, the pandemic ended a year ago that we kind of revisited the idea of, of that space. And it's in a basement, so it's always going to have like speakeasy vibes. So that kind of was a kind of like easy part of the concept is like, all right, we definitely want something that feels classic, a little bit timeless, a little bit stuck in the past uh, kind of thing. Gin is one of our favorite spirits between Seth and I. So we knew that we wanted to do something that was gin focused. And we were kind of thinking about things that that would go with the gin bar. Like, what do you want the vibe to be and all that stuff? But it just so happened that during this time, I was kind of sitting on the couch with my computer doing work and Bronwyn was watching uh, the movie La La Land in the background. The very last scene, the main character gets his own jazz lounge and and they walk down there and you see the jazz lounge and like kind of just something clicked in my head where I was like, oh, that would be kind of cool. Like Bronwyn's first cousin is a jazz musician. Like he's very in the community. So I called him the next day and I was like, hey, like, you know, that space that I've been saying we want to do. I was like, what What do you think if it was a jazz lounge? Like, do you think that that would be something that would fly in the short north? Do you think that we could get the musicians to fill it out six nights a week? Like, what would that be like? And he was, his name's Hayden. Um, so Hayden was really positive on the whole idea. It's also really funny because I've told that story before and everyone like latches on to the La La Land thing where it's like, oh, this is a La La Land inspired bar. And I'm like, no, it's not at all. Like, that was just the thing that like made it click in my brain of like, of like, oh, like we could do a jazz lounge down here. So anyway, I basically handed off the music part of it to Hayden um, and he came on board as our uh, general manager he does all the music booking. He completely set up the stage from start to finish, like uh, consulted with a group called Sound Ideas to set up the soundboard, the, the PA system, how all the inputs on the stage work. We have a very, very high tech uh, system that we can record podcasts. We can record all sorts of stuff with our, our setup. So it's really, really cool. Um, we, we wanted to have like the best stage in Columbus, which I think we've come really close to accomplishing so yeah, it's really cool and wading into those kind of waters that I don't know that well. Like I like jazz, but I certainly don't know the musicians, the the classics, all that stuff. So this has been a really cool learning experience for me. I'm starting to recognize songs that people are kind of playing with their own arrangements and stuff like that. So, and when Hayden's off, I need to run the soundboard. So I've been really engaged in like how to balance music, how to how to work all the the ins and outs of a really complicated system. So yeah, that's where kind of like the idea of, of doing the jazz lounge came from. Like I said, the cocktails are, are mostly gin inspired. It was kind of the same thing with Seth, where I was kind of like, you understand the vibe that we're going for. I'm not a bartender. Like just what format do you want to do? And he said, I kind of want seven to 10 classic cocktails that people haven't really heard of, like not like old fashions and stuff like that, but things that are like way more like deep divey that have history that 
even relate to like jazz and jazz lounges in Paris in 1956 or like whatever. And then like six to 10 originals as well. So he just took the reins with that idea and just went with it. Um, the cocktail menu he's come up with is amazing. And then uh, we have like a build your own gin martini bar, but it's all gins that most people haven't heard of. So it's not like Bombay Sapphire and Hendrix and stuff like that. It's way more like deep divey, small batch uh, thing, uh, gins from places you wouldn't think of. Like we have a Spanish gin called Iram on the menu. That is absolutely my favorite, like Eureka gin. And of course we have the local uh, watershed four peel gin is incredible. We feature that in a lot of stuff. Um, so it's really cool. I mean, it's it's a it's a really nice menu to explore. A lot of stuff for everyone, but also educational, which I, I think is a really underutilized part of what it is that we do as an industry. Is like we have the opportunity to educate people on things that they didn't necessarily know that they liked. So getting introduced gins, getting introduced vermouths, getting introduced classic cocktails that people maybe have never heard of or were like the precursors to cocktails that they do know has been a really fun exercise. I think when people think Columbus, obviously you don't think jazz, but there is, I don't want to call it like an underground jazz scene, but there are a handful of places, mostly out in like the suburbs that would have jazz nights. So you guys have kind of been able to almost centralize that and just open up like another aspect. It's really interesting. I love history, obviously. I feel like it's a really important part of food culture in general is understanding like where things come from, why they are that way. And jazz and Columbus actually have a really interesting, if not heartbreaking, uh, relationship with one another. Columbus is basically between St. Louis and Chicago as far as like the paths traveled. And those were two huge jazz cities. I don't want to misstate this, but I believe in like the 1930s, 1940s. So Columbus actually has a really, really rich tradition of jazz halls, uh, jazz lounges, places like that, that a lot of the really famous people that were coming from Chicago, St. Louis, back and forth, would stop here and, and do things here. And it was kind of during, unfortunately, redlining and what kind of like divided our city that it kind of killed our jazz scene in the 1950s, 1960s. So there is a rich tradition of jazz in Columbus that, like I said, has a really tragic kind of story around it. But there are still local musicians and quite a lot of them. I mean, we have six nights a week live jazz and we have different people playing every single night. And we're still constantly adding new people to the roster who who are here so we have no problem with just local artists filling out six nights a week and that's it's not like everyone's playing every single week like we have people who take a month off and then come and play again or, or like uh alex burgoyne for instance only plays every other saturday with us with a quartet of really talented awesome people and like we've got at least six or seven different stand-up bases who like kind of mix and match with different bands who come through like it, it's a really really tight community and they all know each other, which is really cool. So like sometimes you'll see like a saxophonist play with one band and then they show up three nights later with a different band. And like, they, it's, it's really cool. And like, they show up for each other. They'll come in, like a piano player will come in and watch a different group play. So it's, we do have a really good rich um, scene here. And like, I don't know if, if underground is, is completely accurate. I think that, that might have more to do with the appetite of the public to go see jazz because these guys work all the time. But our biggest problem is finding free time in their day for us to book them. It's not like they're just sitting around waiting for us to call them. They're busy. They work all the time. So I think that there just hasn't been enough places that are dedicated to just jazz. Like places will have jazz nights or 
a wedding, we'll book a jazz band or something like that. But um, we really wanted to be a place that was focused on just jazz. So yeah, the Park Street Tavern used to have a jazz night on like Tuesdays, but that's dating myself. Like that was a handful of years ago. I don't even know if that still happens or not. So the name itself, that's Alice in Wonderland, right? Uh, so that that definitely has something to do with it. To be completely honest, it kind of started off as a joke. We knew that we were going to do the jazz lounge and we were kind of having like naming meetings, which are some of the most frustrating things to do. Trying to name something is like the hardest thing. We knew it was going to be gin focused and it is down like a rabbit hole, essentially in a basement. And we just kind of jokingly started calling it the ginger rabbit. And after going through all these names and all these iterations of like, we knew that we wanted it to be something about a rabbit. I don't really know why, but we just kind of did. One day we were just like, why are we fighting against this? We keep calling it Ginger Rabbit. We all love it. It makes sense. Like, it just is what it is. So it's really cool. And then our signature cocktail is called the Ginger Rabbit. And it's, uh, you know, carrot juice, celery bitters, uh, ginger syrup. So it's all things that like a rabbit would eat, <laughs> theoretically, is the idea that Seth had behind it. Um, and it's fantastic. So, you know, it all kind of just fit together. And I, I feel like naming things is really hard. And I always hate names like i hated rose's luxury when i first heard it i hated husk i hated pineapple and pearls like i hated them the first time that you heard it but then it just becomes what it is so it's kind of like at this point i try not to fight too hard about the names because it's like dude at a certain point we're going to open and it's just going to be what people know it as and people won't think about it too hard after it's just like yes that place is called ginger rabbit but yeah i actually love the name it was like the first place that just from like wire to wire i was like yeah it's a cool name yeah, I think the biggest challenge with naming stuff is making sure that there's not something else out there that's too similar. Like there's been a couple people that have like opened restaurants that have found, you know, they either opened or weren't able to grab like a social media handle right away or something like that. And then, you know, some other restaurant opens and like people get some confused with somebody else or very similar names. Like there's in, I think it's like Cincinnati, Indianapolis and Detroit. There's all like there's three restaurants and they're all like something in real there's like an oakley's fish house and there's like an oak and real and then there's something else and it's like i always get them mixed up as to like which one's located where because the names are so similar even though they're none of them are affiliated with each other or anything totally i mean then there's silly things like chapman's eat market when we first did that we bought chapman's and it wasn't until we started like typing it out with no spaces that we realized that it looks like chapman seat market so when I was trying to like get all of our purveyors and stuff like that, they're like, what, you sell chairs? Like, <laughs> we're like, no. So that's when we changed it to Eat Chapman's, which now people come up to me, they're like, yeah, I really had a good time at, at uh, Eat Chapman's. And I'm like, it's actually Chapman's Eat Market, but okay, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You had a good time at our place. You're going to tell your friends about it. It's cool. I don't care if you call it the wrong thing. So like you mentioned, the space was previously Kingmaker, which was like a game board shop uh you could go in there play games at game nights stuff like that kind of a get together place which probably covid did not help uh any business like that i can imagine so i want to say they actually closed shop before covid hit it was either before covid or it was like right when covid hit they they closed shop it's rough like covid definitely redefined a lot of things and definitely a board game bar was not something that was going to thrive in that environment. It's something like, honestly, I wish that I had known that it was there because that's something that I would enjoy. I love playing games with people. With that space though, same design team, I think, right. As, as Chapman's, you guys did it pretty quick in like a couple months. Uh, the planning phase was 
a while, but as far as like the construction from start to finish, it, it really got knocked out quickly. I think that we broke ground on construction in January, if I'm not mistaken, we were done in mid April. So like it was, it was pretty quick. We had a minimal amount of stuff to do. It really turns out that building a kitchen is the thing that uh, slows projects down and we didn't have to build a kitchen here. Like the biggest piece of construction we had to do was we had to trench out part of the floor to run plumbing from basically all the plumbing in that space was like very old. Um, so we had to retrench for floor drains and stuff like that. Cause we also moved the bar kind of from like one side of the space to the other. So that probably took about two weeks to do the retrenching, the replumbing and all that stuff. And then after that, it was just like, go, go, go. Mostly like Chapman's just aesthetic things like wallpaper, painting, redoing the bathrooms, just like uh, Chapman's. It had a, a women's room and a men's room originally. We don't really believe in gendering the, the restroom. So took the urinal out of one restroom, took the other toilet out of the other and just made two really grand unisex bathrooms. We did the exact same thing at Chapman's. So you know, bathrooms are a vibe. We want it to be something that people can enjoy. So those are the biggest things we did. And then building the stage took a, a minute, but like it wasn't, it wasn't that much. Uh, getting actually our, getting our ice machine in was our biggest struggle. It like showed up a day before we opened. That was like the only thing that was really a pain in the butt with, with that project. The rest of it was pretty, pretty smooth. I might be blacking something out. Like there might've been another struggle in there, but it was a very smooth project to get open. So as you mentioned, there's no kitchen. So you guys do like a menu of small plates, including tinned fish, which is pretty big in, in Europe, especially Spain. That's a big thing in Spain. You know, what made you want to incorporate tinned fish in the concept? Because I feel like the only places you really see it are like big cities like Boston, New York, maybe you see it in Chicago. But what made you guys kind of want to bring that aspect into the situation? It's funny because I don't know if you meant for it to be, but that was a little bit of a leading question for something that I'm really passionate about, which is, you know, Columbus is the 14th biggest city in the U.S., I think. We're a big city. Like, we're, we should be compared to, you know, the New Yorks, the Chicago's, the Austin's, the Phillies, places like that. Like, yeah, I know we're not as big as New York, whatever, but like, we are a metropolis. Like, we should take ourselves a little more seriously. And like, that's part of what, I'd like to do is bring vibes that that other cities have embraced here that like I I've seen on my travels like I've been to Spain I've been to Portugal it's very common to have lunch and have really good sardines spread on some sourdough with really good butter and I thought that was a vibe that we w could like really thrive with we found this company called uh, Priori P R I O R I um, it's actually out of Utah, randomly enough, but they are a really big importer of conservas from all over the world, not just Spain and Portugal. But we have some on our menu that are from Sweden, from Denmark, from Maine. Tin fish is, is all over the place, like any seafaring <laughs> culture has, has got a preservative kind of thing. So I've tasted probably three to 400 different conservas to make our menu of 10. The quality of this stuff is incredible. The craftsmanship, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for of, of these products is, is really astonishing that you can have that in a can and have it be so nice. And we use Dan the Baker bread, who's local and incredible. We use local butter. We use local uh, microgreens grown by one of our favorite farmers. It's that simple, just really good product. You make yourself a little open-faced sandwich and it's awesome. Um, we also have charcuterie from uh, Hungarian Butcher. We have a cheese plate with two different options of cheeses from uh, Black Radish Creamery, also local. We have uh, caviars, which obviously aren't local, but we serve it with Hen of the Woods potato chips and a local creme fraiche. So like, we really wanted to show off kind of what Ohio has to offer 
along with things that that are global that you know other big cities other other places in the world have have really embraced and i feel like our feedback on it has been extremely positive we've had a few isolated cases of people who are just like i won't touch that but i feel like you get that anywhere that's not like unique to columbus i'm not poo-pooing on on our clientele like i think that there's just always going to be people who like it's not their bag i kind of get it like tin fish is a weird thing for people who only grew up with like bumblebee tuna so yeah, overall, our, our response for it has been overwhelmingly positive. It's been an awesome experience for me to get to learn a lot more about a lot of the methods that, that people use, a lot of the traditions behind this stuff, and, and uh, yeah, really get to be a brand ambassador for, for some of these companies that like always reshare our Instagram posts from Spain, which is like so cool to me. Yeah, and we sell a ton of them. It's been great. For a lot of restaurants and like hospitality groups, a bar always seems kind of like the second concept, like the natural progression as they continue to open things. It's usually either a bar or like some sort of to go fast casual kind of aspect. Why is that? Is that just it makes sense from like a financial perspective, like low expenses to open this thing and, and you know, decent income, low overhead, probably don't need that many staff. If you're not even doing like a whole bunch of food, like then you don't need a whole kitchen team and kitchen supplies and all that stuff. Yeah, I think that definitely is a reason why, why that happens. I mean, ex- expanding from one project to two projects is easily the hardest expansion to make. From two to three is a lot easier. And then every time you grow past that, you just have so many people that are part of your organization who have opened things that understand what our concepts are, how to translate all of our like behind the scenes paperwork and, and communication with the accountants and just like all the things that make opening a restaurant really difficult. Just any of the things that making running a restaurant easy where here our director of ops, uh, Pam, was the opening GM at Chapman. She literally set up all of our operations. So when we opened Ginger Rabbit, she was just like, I took all the things that work at Chapman's, wedged them into Ginger Rabbit. We took out all the things that, that don't apply and here we are. Infrastructure is fantastic. So we really hit the ground running like that. If it had been another full-blown restaurant, it would have been, I think, really difficult. So I think that, that from a uh, strategic standpoint, doing something smaller that you can just pull a small team and get more people experience of like opening the next concept. So yeah, fast casual fits in that vibe. We definitely had considered doing a Chapman's Burger Market. Um, would still love to do a Chapman's Burger Market at some point, but I don't think that it's in our immediate future, um, or a bar. And those were kind of like our two next project ideas um, before tackling another full, full-blown restaurant is to get that experience of opening a second one under our belt. And now you are going to tackle opening another full-blown restaurant though, aren't you? Yeah, we are. Um, uh, at the same time, actually, that we signed the lease for Ginger Rabbit, we signed a lease for a restaurant that is a much, much larger scope that's about a block and a half away from Ginger Rabbit, the short north, that we're going to call Hiraith. It's, it's a Welsh word. It's spelled H-I-R-A-E-T-H. So it is definitely going to be a difficult one for people to pronounce. It's actually pronounced Hiraith, but I will never hold anyone to trying to say it that way, nor will I say it that way when talking about it. Um, yeah, it's going to be a really cool concept. Everything's wood-fired. So we have a uh, 10-foot hearth that we uh, have custom-built from uh, Grills by Dement, which is a really, really high-end uh, custom fabricator in Atlanta. Um, so Wes, our head chef, and I flew down to Atlanta about two months ago and like literally piece by piece chose what we were going to do for this hearth. It's really cool. There's two different yakitori parts to it. There's a, a adjustable grill. There's all sorts of like 
pieces that are mutable that like it could be a smoker box or it pops off and then it can be wire racks that you can hold ducks on or like whatever. So we made sure to set it up so that it can evolve um, along with the restaurant. And then there's going to be two bars in the space. It's two floors. So it's a, a ground floor entrance and then you go down to the basement which is where the kitchen and most of the dining room is so it's like 1500 square feet on the ground floor and then 4000 feet in the basement it's going to be really cool and and kind of the concept behind it is everything is um forged in fire like clay tiles or uh like charred wood tables and yeah just like a very um primal but elegant feel to everything which i think is a really cool uh duality to to mess around with yeah i mean you've opened numerous restaurants before in DC, as we kind of covered before, and, and obviously you're doing it here again. How challenging is it to make sure that the concepts, there's okay with some overlap, but you want them to be kind of standalone. You want them to be different, right? So you don't want, you know, half of the menu at Chapman's being half of the menu at like the new place. Like you want to make it its own thing too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- there's no menu crossover that I can really see that we would do. Aaron, my boss in DC, always had a good saying about that, where it's like all these restaurants are the same heart with different clothes. They'll present differently, but the underlying like mission is the same. So we're here to to make sure that our staff is well taken care of, is, are happy, um, that our guests are well taken care of and happy. And we're doing, you know, all the things that we can <laughs> to be good to our environment, to be good to Columbus and all the things that are really important to us. But the way that it will present itself uh, on the menu will be completely different than Chapman's. The way that the decor, the way that, yeah, the, the glassware, just everything about it will be different. I think that Ginger Rabbit and Chapman's definitely are close kin to one another, just vibes wise. I think that what we're going to do at Heraith is going to be a full departure from from a decorating standpoint um, and like a, an interaction standpoint from what Chapman's is. I mean, we're really specific about our hospitality. So like the, the way the servers are trained, all those things will be the same. Like people will be there to show you a good time. We don't take ourselves too seriously. But yeah, it's definitely going to be a different experience. What's the targeted kind of opening are you looking at like a year from now or like you know, whatever you target, like tack on probably four to six months, probably for delays in anything. But we had originally targeted when we signed the lease May of this past year. So we've already blown past what our original targeted open date was. Our goal right now is to start construction in July, probably at this point towards the end of July. And I'm being told that it'll be about a five month construction schedule. It's an empty space right now. There's no kitchen. There's no plumbing. There's nothing. It's It's a warm shell. So we need to do everything. HVAC, which apparently is going to be a really big pain in the butt. We need to bring in the hoods. We need to bring in all the kitchen stuff. So it's a, it's a monumental project uh, to undertake. And it's easily the biggest project I've been a part of, even with all the other restaurants that I've opened. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's really nerve wracking, to be honest. It's about to be really real when we break ground in, in a, a little over a month. And then recently you got to participate in uh, Indie Chefs, the event that was here a few weeks back. So how was that experience? It was incredible. And unfortunately, I only got to participate in about 30% of it because I was diagnosed with COVID the day of the, <laughs> the final dinner. So um, I only actually got to really interact with half the chefs who were here in town for it because the way that they do it is they had a dinner on Thursday night 
that half the chefs participated in. And then they had dinner on Friday night. The other halves did. So I was a part of the Friday night dinner. So the 12 chefs who were part of that, we all had a, a really good time together. Definitely made some friends that I'll be keeping up with for a really long time. And we're all on a uh, WhatsApp thread together that's still like, even to this day, we were just WhatsApping. Like every single day, we, we talked to each other, um, all 24 chefs on that group. So I was really bummed. I didn't get to do the, the Sunday dinner because I was diagnosed Sunday morning um, with COVID. So I didn't get to yeah participate. So I really want to do another one, not in Columbus, like go somewhere else and do it because I really want the full experience. I normally avoid kind of stuff like that. Um, and I don't really know why. It's just, it's always such a, a massive time commitment. And I don't really like, some of these feel like really commercial. And I never really done any research about the the indie chefs. And after doing it, it doesn't feel commercial at all. It really is a situation where all the chefs get to like work together, meet each other. That's like the whole point is to create a community of people who support each other. And and I already feel that. I mean, we I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but we're recording this two days after the Supreme Court decision for Roe, overturning Roe. So we've all been texting each other about that. And uh, at some point, Chapman's is going to actually host a dinner with a bunch of the chefs from Indie Chefs with all the proceeds going to some uh, pro-choice helping people for abortion access uh, charities. So we're going to figure that out. And hopefully it's something that we can continue to do as a group of chefs is do a rotation of who's going to host dinners and stuff like that. I just volunteered Chapman's uh, to be the first one. Um, so I'm down to go and cook with other people for, for the same cause um, as much as we possibly can. So it is really cool. And like, that's the community that was built off of this dinner or off of uh, the, the event in Columbus is that we now have a group of people who have a common cause that I can reach out to about stuff like that. Like, Hey, like want to do a, a dinner that goes to this or that or the other thing, or who has a good restaurant account or like, you know, whatever. It, it, it is really cool that, that we built a, uh, a good community out of that. And that's the goal. It seemed like it was a really cool experience for everybody involved from the stuff that I, I saw. Matt Hankins, who came on uh, this podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, he kind of had a similar first inkling. He was like, why did I sign up to like work for free for like four days? Like, what am I doing? But he said it was a, it was a really awesome experience. I knew nothing about indie chefs at all. And Avishar texted me one day and he was like, I signed you up to do this thing. I was like, okay. And then I completely forgot about it. And then one of the organizers reached out to me. And they're like, all right, we need all this information from you. I'm like, Avishar, what the hell did you sign me up for, man? He's like, just give me the information you're doing. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so that was, that was as far as it was. And like, I'm really grateful that he did. It was, uh, it really was a, a great experience. Like even the local chefs who I'm like friends with, Matt, uh, Andrew Smith, uh, Katie Randazza, like all those people who participate, like I'm friends with them. We hang out, we, we do things together. We get, we grew way closer doing the dinner than, uh, than we had been. So yeah, it was, it was just overall, you know, a really, really positive experience. And if there's anyone out there listening to this who has the opportunity to do a dinner with, with uh, the indie chefs, I 100% recommended it. It was a really positive experience that, like I said, unfortunately, I only got to do about 30% of it and would have loved to have been a part of the rest of it. But uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get a redo on it for sure. And then on top of that, we got to show off Columbus to all these people who like really enjoyed it, really enjoyed Columbus or definitely coming back to visit at, at some point who never would have maybe considered Columbus a cool food town before coming here and getting to experience some of the, some of the stuff. So yeah, it was, uh, I think overall positive for the city and, and positive for the participating chefs. 
Yeah, there's a lot of cool restaurants on the way. Um, you know, obviously you guys got some stuff in the works. The Hilton's got like three new things that are opening. Josh Dalton's got some stuff opening. So there's a lot of stuff. We didn't see any like restaurant growth for a couple of years. A lot of that's because of COVID just kind of put everything on hold. And nobody knew it was going to shake out. But now it seems like everybody's able to kind of start doing stuff again. So it'd be cool to see everything kind of expand and new concepts finally start to open. Yeah. And I think that there's a, a really cool transition happening right now where it's going from the more corporate, you know, I, I don't have anything against Cameron Mitchell or, or any of the other like kind of larger groups that are around from every space that opens up on high street to having one of those places going in where landlords now are focusing on trying to get some diversity in, in who's taking these spaces and individual operators are, getting the first crack at a lot of these things. So like Avishar is opening some spots. I know that there's some other people who are looking around. And then honestly, I know a few people from out of town who are even looking here as possibly their next place to, to go. So you and I have spoken about this before, but I feel like I was in a really um, lucky position to be in Charleston when I was in Charleston, where it really went from transitioning from like a tourist Bubba Gump's, <laughs> you know, whatever kind of food city, everything with like crappy shrimp and grips on, on the menu to something that was really chef driven and small operator driven. And then I feel very fortunate. That I think I was in DC to, to see that same transition as well um, from, you know, power lunches, but everyone leaves the city to go back to the suburbs for dinner into something that was a sustainable workforce, a sustainable economy of really amazing vibrant restaurant scene that, you know, it bore out all the way to, to getting a Michelin guide in DC, which I think if you told anyone in 2008 that DC would ever have a Michelin guide, they would have laughed you out of the room. And I see a similar transition happening in Columbus right now. And I don't know if the pandemic helped or hurt th that trajectory, but definitely at this point, like, again, quote unquote, coming out of the pandemic, even though everyone has COVID still right now, but coming out of it, it definitely is something that that's happening is the small operators, the really good small operators are getting their chance. Our workforce is definitely tough right now, but it's better than a lot of places in the country. I can tell you that for sure. And the staff that we've had at, at Chapman's and Ginger Rabbit are, are A plus folks that like, I'm so happy that they exist in, in Columbus. And we just have a really, in my opinion, a really strong workforce. I know some people will probably argue with me on that, but, but I'm really impressed. I, I, I really like the city. I really think that there's some cool stuff about to happen. And like, I don't think we'll ever get a Michelin guide here, but I do see kind of like the same trajectory that Columbus and DC were on. I, I see it happening here too. Well, Florida got one, Toronto got one. So if Columbus Board of Tourism wants to put up like half a million dollars, I'm sure they could get one. Um, I would rather they use that towards like public transportation or something and get us something besides a bus line, but that's my own opinion expand the Chicago one to be like more of like the whole Midwest or like the way that the DC one also includes the inner little Washington, which is like legitimately an hour from DC. Like you could have gone to Baltimore for that or whatever. Like I think that getting some more regional stuff for the Michelin guides makes sense because I mean, if you think about what the actual goal of the Michelin guide is, it's supposed to be to get people to travel to places to, to eat. So like having a core city with then places that are maybe within two, three hours outside of that city actually makes a lot of sense to me for the way that the guides could work. Yeah. I think a lot of it, I mean, you can nitpick different parts of it. I mean, how relevant is it? You know, a lot of it's tasty menu or French or Japanese styled restaurants too, as well. Do people, I don't know, I feel like Columbus, you know, you get people that are out in the suburbs and they don't want to drive 
20, 30 minutes to get to a, a restaurant. Some of them, they're kind of in that old mindset where they're like, well, I'm, this is just where I am. And if I have to go farther than 15 minutes, then like, I'm not going to do it. It's like, yeah, but it's like totally worth it. So it's, it's changing that mindset and stuff like that too. So. I mean, maybe, but that's, again, like that's part of becoming, I don't want to say a real city. That's not the, the terminology that, that I want to use for it. I'm just having, and becoming a, a more legit destination city is that like traveling a half an hour in Columbus means driving 20 miles. Traveling a half an hour in DC <laughs> means going four miles. So like, there's a little bit of a like relativity thing here where like I drive out to Powell to go eat at at Osteria, you know, um, I, I've driven up. I know Ghost Rider just um, went on hiatus for a while. I actually saw you there when we went up there. But like, I drive up to, to Johnstown to go to Ghost Rider. Like, I love traveling for food. And I hope that I drive down to Cincinnati for meals. Hell. And that's something that happens in, in like good food cities is you need to work for it a little bit sometimes. You can't just go to your neighborhood spot all the time. Like, I love that Chapman's is a neighborhood restaurant in German village. But if it wasn't for people traveling from Bexley and UA and, you know, all over Columbus, like we wouldn't do the business that we do. So like, I do feel like it is turning. So you're right. There are people who won't travel from Pal or, or wherever down to the city, but there are people who will do that, who will drive a half an hour. I think there's a whole other thing to be said about public transportation and how people get around. Like, the fact that people go out to dinner and they're like, where's your park? Or like come to a bar and they're like, where's your parking? Like you drove, you knew you were going to drink tonight and you drove here. Like, I don't get that. Like, why didn't you Uber? Like, okay, whatever. Like that's, that's your life. You do, you do you, but like, I just can't believe that like people drive to go out to bars, but yeah, I think that, I think that's an interesting thing about our city too. That people just drive everywhere instead of taking any kind of public transport or Ubers or whatever. But I think that everyone knows that parking is an issue in Columbus, and it's way better than it used to be. Before, like it was just meters, and you didn't know the situation. Like the app made it way easier. Now, I mean, I think right around the corner from you guys, I'm off of is it Buttles? There's the parking garage, like right there. It's a, I think it's part of the the guild house, but it's public parking. You can park there. Like there's numerous places to park. Like it's way easier than it used to be. And then actually here, Eighth is built in the same complex as a parking garage. So it's a parking garage, like I think 12 apartment units and then the, the restaurant. And that's what the, the building is. It's the corner of Lincoln and Pearl, like back behind the original Jenny's. Yeah, it's a brand, brand new construction, but the parking garage is like 80% of that structure. That's a boon for the short north. And hopefully it's a boon for the, the restaurant's as well but you know it's just an interesting thing to me that that everyone drives everywhere when you know in dc we would do like brown and i drove our car like maybe once a week <laughs> besides that like and i know we had the metro so like there don't get me wrong like I, I know that we had like different means of public transport but like getting around kind of stinks i understand you live in a city it is what it is you sacrifice a few things for the convenience of like being close to restaurants and such Ginger Rabbit, you guys are open Monday through Thursday, 5 to 10, Friday and Saturday, 5 to 11. And then reservations are not needed, but encouraged. Yeah, so we have 10 seats at the bar that are always saved for walk-ins. The rest of the tables can be reserved. At this point, the weekends are pretty booked out during the week or hit or miss of whether or not you can get a reservation or not. And then uh, we have live music, again, Monday through Thursday. It's from 6 to 9. And then on the weekends, we have 5.30 to 10. We have an opener and then a, a main act. So live music every single night. When we're not playing live music, we only spin vinyl, jazz vinyl. So it really is like the consummate or jazz lounge, I guess, as we call it. 
Yeah, we haven't had the chance to get there yet. As soon as uh, a little bit more consistency in the schedule and uh, and are able to step away for four or five hours, we'll we'll tie it into a trip a downtown um, at some point. But yeah, we'll we'll definitely check it out. Um, it looks like a cool spot, and it's um, one of probably like five bars in the city that don't have TVs on the wall too. So. Uh, Dude, I'm so anti-TV in a bar. Like bars are meant to be like meeting places, like places to like meet people and share ideas and talk. Like that is the the spark of like taverns and like what they were used for. They were meet, meeting places for the community. When you throw a TV on the wall, everyone's attention just goes right to a freaking TV. Like we're just mindless creatures. Like if there's something shiny on the wall, you just look at it. I want people to like talk and like have a good time. Like, yeah, if the OSU game is on, we might be slow. Like Go to a sports bar. I'm fine with that. Look at your phone, stream it, whatever. I want people to like be present, talk to each other, have a conversation. We'll see you soon. Uh, it sounds like the reception's been awesome for the first few months of opening. And I think you guys are, are like you said, usually booked out on the weekends um, for certain. So I'm looking forward to getting down there, looking forward to updates on the new concept. And we'll be sure to have you back on when you guys get closer to opening uh, the new concept, whenever that is. And we'll definitely be seeing you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for the support, man. Always love seeing you. Big thanks to BJ for coming back on the podcast, uh, taking some time out of kind of his weekend, his morning uh, to come and chat about everything going on in Columbus, but also about Ginger Rabbit. So again, you can follow them on Instagram at Ginger Rabbit Jazz. You can also follow the Chapman's uh, restaurant accounts at Eat Chapman's and at Drink Chapman's. His account is at BJ Lieberman. They'll have a new account for the new restaurant when it uh, gets closer to opening uh, Juarez there, which starts with an H. Um, so, but I don't know what the, the name of the account will be. But uh, both properties right now, Ginger Rabbit Inn, E. Chapman's, they're both open um, Monday through Saturday. So make a reservation to either. I would encourage reservations. Um, obviously, uh, the reservation book with Chapman's by now, most of you probably know, opens on the first of the month, but you can check periodically, see if somebody canceled or something and something opened up. You can also walk into the bar there too as well, but you can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mom. Check out the website, spoonmom.com. Make sure to subscribe, follow the podcast on whatever platform that you use to listen to your podcasts. You can also check out our YouTube channel too as well, if that's your preferred player. It's always great to catch up with BJ and I'm sure we'll be seeing and, and talking with him again soon, especially once they get closer to open and up the uh, new restaurant concept that they're working on. But that's it for this week's kind of mini update episode. New episode on Thursday, and we will talk to you guys later.